In this episode of NSH's podcast series, Awards Cast, Nadia Gale, Region 9 Director and member of the IHC Committee, talks to Jeremy Johnston, who happens to be Region 8 Director and the 2020 recipient of the Excellence in Standardization for IHC Scholarship. I'll now turn it over to Nadia. Hi, Jeremy. First off, I wanted to congratulate you on being the 2020 recipient of the Immunohistochemistry Scholarship in recognition of your pursuit of excellence in the realm of standardization for IHC. So that's a mouthful. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. I was, I was honored to receive it. And I am also honored to be able to sit down with you today and speak about this. I'm Nadia and I'm the Region 9 Director with NSH and I'm a member of the IHC committee with you. So I thought we'll just jump into everything. So I thought I would give you a little introduction if that's okay from what I've learned about you, Jeremy, is that all yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so your list of accomplishments is very long. So I just took out some highlights. Not only are you the director for region eight and have been, I believe, for the past five years, but you're a competency trainer and grader with the NSH CAP Collaboration Histoquip. You're the NSH Liaison for CAP's Pre-Analytic Committee, a subgroup of the Personalized Healthcare Committee, and you're a member of NSH's IHC Committee, like I just said. And you also have three kids, and that just like blows me away. So <laughs> is there anything you'd like to add in there, Jeremy? No, I appreciate it. That's very, very flattering. It, it's it's a fun society, a fun group of people to be involved in, and I really just try to provide value wherever I can. So I, I don't know that there's anything to write home about, but I'm just happy to be involved and provide value where I can. Well, I, for one, was very impressed. Well, thank you. And I am learning myself how much fun NSH is as a new, newly appointed or elected, I suppose, director. I wanted to start by asking you what led you to where you are today in your role as the histology supervisor with Virginia Mason in Seattle. You graduated from George Fox with a degree in chemistry in 2002. So how did you go from chemistry to histology? Yeah, that's a great question. I loved chemistry. And so that was my passion through high school and in college. Didn't really know as a lot of people come out of college with a degree, don't know where to go or what to do with that. So I, I wanted to find something to get involved in and start making money because poor college student, you need to do something with your life. Um, and I had three family members that worked at the hospital in my hometown in Southern Oregon. So one of them happened to be in the histology lab, not as a histotech, but she was in the histology lab. And so I knew they had an opening. I knew they were willing to do on-the-job training. So I am an on-the-job trained histotech. I didn't go to a formal education. But a couple of years into that, I realized, hey, maybe I should try something with this chemistry degree. And by that point, I was already making more than what I could start at going back to a chemistry. And I didn't even have necessarily a path to go forward with chemistry. So really just decided to get plugged into histology um, and that lab was kind of my first exposure to IHC. So that was all manual IHC. We had, you know, these incubator chambers where we do overnight IHC retrieval, if you will, or incubation. And yeah, it really gave me the opportunity to understand the science behind what we're doing. It wasn't just a hit a button on a machine. I really got my, those are my formative years for understanding what reagents were doing what on the slides. So 
yeah, and I've loved it ever since and kind of just progressed. I ultimately, as you pointed out, I have three kids. And so my wife, I met her, she was up in Seattle and so chose to move and we got married and I moved up to Seattle and that was, I looked, I actually went door, door knocking at several labs just to see what, what's the receptiveness for this field up here. I didn't even have appointments. I just knocked on labs and had two different, I went three different labs, let me in the, let me in the front door, which I don't know if they do that anymore, but two of them gave me off job offers on the spot. So, you know, sight unseen, just knowing that they needed histotechs and I had described my skill set. And so I, I kind of had a good feeling about the area. And so when I moved up to Seattle without a job, I didn't have a job at the time. I just moved here and got married and bunked up with some friends. And um, we decided that uh, Phenopath would be the place that I would want to um, work at. So that was actually the only place I applied to and took about a month to get on there. But ultimately that's what took me to that job and worked my way up into management from there. And I've really enjoyed management in the histology and pathology lab and have had increasing responsibilities into different departments over the years. So went up to Bellingham, had some exposure there to uh, molecular and PCR, and then ultimately knew that there was a director position down where I'm at now. Fortunately, they rolled the director position and the supervisor role that I was previously in into a, a manager role. So I'm, I'm not a director, but I am doing a lot of director type roles in my current place. But uh, just absolutely love the field, love the profession, feel fairly good at leadership. And so, yeah, that's how I came to where I'm at today. It sounds very serendipitous to start <laughs> at least. <laughs> yeah. And really exciting that you ended up at Phenopath that I've followed uh, Dr. Alan Gown's career and have been privileged to see him speak several times. And I was quite curious to know what working with him was like at Phenopath. Yeah, he is one of the brightest people I've ever met. You interact with people over time and you realize that there are people that are brighter than you. And that's not a surprise to myself. I'm, I'm not the brightest guy in the room, but he is like off the charts, a uh, really bright person and really just down to earth, very caring, very benevolent and really fun company to work for. It's right there on the ship canal. So you get to watch big ships go by, but that was really where I got the bulk of my IHC experience. So we were validating antibodies left and right. Um, at any given time, I'd be working on three or four different antibody validations and we'd get to sit with the pathologist, including Dr. Gown at like a five or seven headed microscope. We would read slides or cases daily. They would have a, a tech scoring with them. So you're sitting there with one of the world's most world-renowned pathologists and he's telling you everything about the case and you're learning and experiencing and growing underneath him, which is a really rare experience for pathology. I don't think a lot of labs, I don't think a lot of pathologists dedicate that much time and resources into the techs, but you really reap the benefits of that downstream when you have techs that are super knowledgeable. So that's where I got my HistoQuip certification and, and really just the, the depth of knowledge that I have with IHC came from sitting um, and learning from him directly. That's awesome. And that sounds very similar to myself in my career where I had that opportunity at one of the locations I worked at to sit down every single day with a pathologist. And that uh, is invaluable experience later on as a technologist, as you've said. You mentioned that you got your HistoQuip certification while you were there. 
And you're now actually doing more with the HistoQuip program. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, and sorry, just for our listeners, I think I misspoke. So I got my QIHC certification through, uh, gotcha. through ASCP. So that's right. the IHC certification, but I think I did misspeak. So the HistoQuip is a collaboration between the College of American Pathologists and then the National Society of Histotechnology. So it's a it's a neat venture where you have pathologists that are the ones scoring these slides daily, and you have histotechs, usually a lab manager, lab supervisor, somebody with some experience in the field that's been in the field for a while. And so as a histotech, I'm looking at, you know, knife lines, I'm looking at fixation, I'm looking at all these different things. And so the pathologists are looking at it from a different lens. And so it's kind of a neat relationship where you can blend the two of those together. A lot of quality improvement groups don't blend the two of those. They'll just have just pathologists. Um, so I think it's a really neat collaboration between the two societies. And so we, great slides from about 80 different countries around the world. And our goal is to improve the quality of the submitting laboratory. So we score them, provide feedback, and then hopefully they will make changes and adapt. And just the footprint that CAP has in the world, you know, we, we hope that all the work that we put into this committee really nets in, in better quality in patient care for people around the world. So my, my introduction to it was actually through uh, Janet Tunnicliffe, another Canadian friend. Yes, one and, of my uh, colleagues, very well-respected lady in the field. Oh, absolutely. She, she's, a, <laughs> she's a pinnacle in this field for sure. So she was my introduction to the group and really encouraged me to apply and get involved. So I did. And I've, I've learned a lot from her. I've learned a lot from um, Robert Lott. He's one of my mentors um, in the field. And so just love working with that group of really bright people. I mean, you've got Ada Feldman's part of that group, Sue Lewis. We've had Frida Carson there before. Like it's really just your Lena Spencer, just the, 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 the people that I have so much respect for in the field of histology. So it's a really fun, neat group to be a part of. And that's a, a collaboration with CAP and NSH. You've also been a CAP accreditation inspector, is that correct? Yeah, I've done that for quite a few years. That's a fun experience too, is you go into laboratories. So in the US, I, I, well, I think we CAP even does that up in Canada because we, yes. we have an inspection for a Canadian lab. So you have people of like, experience inspecting each other. So I think it, it gives it a better lens than maybe just the, your generic inspectors that kind of have a broad cross-section of, of industries. So I think it's nice that pathology labs are inspecting other pathology labs. So I've, I've done that for quite a few years. And do you think that your experience with CAP in many aspects now has led you to where you are now, driving forward standardization and better quality? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a point in my career where I kind of decided that you need to get involved. I need to pay it forward. I need to invest on that level and not just, you know, clock in, clock out, do my work. And so once you kind of cross that barrier, which I would encourage everybody to do, you get to the point where you realize the rules and the regulations and standards are there for a reason and that they have a direct impact on patient care. So if you're talking about fixation, we know with regards to IHC, like, you know, if we have ischemic time, so the time it goes into formalin is more than that hour. Well, we, we know these different breast markers and things are going to be affected. And, you know, the treatment may or may not be given based on inadequate or inaccurate um, information. So 
knowing that the stuff we do in the lab directly impacts a person at the other end. And I've had a daughter, I have a daughter that is a cancer survivor. So knowing that from a personal standpoint that, you know, there are people tied to the tests we do. We don't often see them in pathology, but it's, it's a pretty important aspect of what we do that I, I deeply care about. It's definitely an issue that comes up quite often that we are removed from patient care. And yet we are the drivers for a lot of patient care now with personalized medicine. What do you see as IHC's role in precision medicine? So I would say there's a couple of factors going into this. One we, we've had, and this is kind of a segue into this answer, but one, we have a depleted workforce from Histotech's perspective. So you do have more labs that are doing on-the-job training. And I feel my training was adequate, but I often feel like it's not. And so you have this depleted workforce, on-the-job training. I think a lot of people are naive to some of the, the aspects of, of what they should be doing. And so that coupled with the fact that industry is moving more towards automation and, and that lends itself to more standardization in, in many regards, not always, but I think we are moving more towards an age when things will be more standardized through automation to address the, the aspect of the short staffing uh, workforce, the depleted workforce, but also to get to what you're talking about where you have greater standardization. I mean, I, I can do a GMS myself, follow the protocol and get slightly different results every time. But if we put it on our, our DACA artisan, it gives the same results every single time. So I think there's a lot to be said for automation. And I don't think it necess necessarily uh, means that it's displacing techs in the lab. I think, I think the two can coexist. So I think there's other aspects to standardization. Part of my role on that, that pre-analytics committee, the precision medicine one, is to look at ways that we can create more standardization. And so some of it is cap checklist item driven and making recommendations to the college about changes that would help push that direction and enforce that direction. You know, some of it's policy driven, some of it is education. So we're trying to look at it from all different fronts and how we can tackle each of those areas. But yeah, it, it is an important aspect to be thinking about because there is a lot of deviation in what labs are doing and specifically with IHC as well. Definitely. I thought, as you said about the GMS, I just thought about the Worth and Starry as a yeah. bench tech and doing yeah. that. And one day it would work beautifully. And yep. the next day there wouldn't be anything there. <laughs> well, and you mentioned earlier my time with Dr. Gown. And when I first started with Dr. Gown, one of the, the studies that they were doing was with the different provinces up in Canada. And I think, and this is not to pick on Canada, you could have done the study in the US, but they had one breast cancer that they sent to five different provinces and got back four different results. And so they realized very quickly that we need to do a retrospective deep analysis of, of what's happening. So I think, you know, there's lots of aspects of where that deviation can happen, whether it's on the scoring and whether it's a technical thing, whether it's some pre-analytic issue, but there's definitely a need for um, that standardization. With that knowledge now that pre-analytics are so important, and I will cite the 2019 article that came out of CAP, Pre-Analytics and Precision Pathology, which was a very important set of guidelines for me, particularly in my role here. I wonder what you see 
connecting the role of pre-analytics and precision pathology and how we can best move forward and keep our technologists educated. So you mentioned earlier, and this is the same thing I encountered in my career where I started off doing manual IHC and you learn all of the steps and how to troubleshoot. And as we move forward with automation and further standardization, how do we ensure that we can produce that quality throughout pre-analytical and in the analytical phase? Yeah, that's a, that's a loaded question. So in some respects, I think the CAP checklist items will enforce that and hopefully the inspectors will touch on those and ask those, especially as they become new checklist items, I think they'll garner more attention and focus. So hopefully that will drive the behavior. But yeah, I mean, as soon as you start automating things and you remove the person from that, that knowledge base that they have, I think you open it up for, you know, we're just going to have to call the vendor to come address these things, or they don't even know that there's an issue because it's just, that's the way it is. And it's automated. We can't address that. So I, I don't know if it would move to a place where you have some super user, you have some, somebody that does receive more training. I think we've looked at with NSH, we've also looked at working more with like CMS and getting, requiring like a bachelor's degree. So further education to, to bolster the, the field of histotechnology, because right now it's not recognized by CMS. So I think there's multiple fronts where you could look at an education piece and then an enforcement and like through, through cap and checklist items and things. But I would say that's, that's definitely a concern as we move forward. You've addressed this partly, though, in your role with Virginia Mason right now, and the way that you involve your bench techs in validation processes. Could you describe that a little bit more for me? Yeah, when I started here, we only had one and a half, two people that were doing validations out of 18. And I quickly realized there's no way for me to address Partly the reason I was doing this was just scale. Um, there's no way for me to address all of the validation requests and needs for our lab through those two people. So if I was going to do it, I was either going to be working 100 hours a week or I was going to have to train people. And the other aspect is I really just genuinely want to educate people and get them the knowledge that I have and share with them to the extent that they're want to know. Some people aren't interested in, in that, but there's a lot of people that are and just don't have that knowledge. And like I said earlier, you know, I had the benefit of sitting in Dr. Gowns teaching, but many pathologists are so busy signing out cases, they just don't have that time. So having somebody with my background to be able to invest in them and train them and um, give them that knowledge is, it provides us that flexibility that I can task anybody with the validation, but it also, I think, helps with retention techs are more engaged. When we start talking about troubleshooting, they can troubleshoot more because they know the different artifacts and the things that you can see. And so I think we're looking at, you know, creating, and we did this at Phenopath, but creating a gold standard slide for every IHC and every special stain, having either a digital database or a physical database that says, you know, the cellular look localization, so nuclear cytoplasmic membranous, you know, but then also looking at artifactual things and sharing that with them. So it's been a learning experience on, on their part to try to invest in them and get the same knowledge that I have or a pathologist has. And so, yeah, it's, it's been a fun experience. And so we've used some of those funds from this scholarship to, to, to buy some, some tools and resources to support that. So yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been a fun experience to bring them all up to speed on that process. 
Well, now I want to hear a little bit more about how you spent those funds. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, I noticed right away, and I don't know if most labs are this way or if just the ones I've worked in, but space is a, a concern. And so all the techs had their own drawer, their own spot where they're squirreling away slides and blocks. And there really is no like centralized hub for this. So I bought a, I don't know, it's right behind me in my office here. It's about seven stacks high and three wide cabinet, if you will. And we've laminated each antibody that they've got there. And so they can all come and deposit their things. And I can have that communication back and forth with them about their validations. And it's all in a centralized spot. It's not cluttered in the lab somewhere. And so that's been really helpful. Yeah, we, we really haven't had any other things that I've, I've used the funds for yet, but that's been the big one. It was, I don't know, $500 for the, the cabinetry, but it's really helpful for me, for my organizational mind and, and for them to have a centralized spot to put those things. So That's actually a huge thing and really speaks to the skill set of technologists that we tend to be very detail oriented and want to be quite organized in our approach yeah. or we can't function very well. Exactly. <laughs> so you did some changes in your laboratory to involve more of the technologists and in your layout of your laboratory as well. What education are you requiring from your technologists that are helping with the validation? Do they go through that QIHC process? You know, I don't think we have a single person here that does have the QIHC other than myself. So we have a I would say probably 30% of our staff have gone to a formal histology school and the rest have been on the job trained. So the knowledge level is lacking. And I think that's where my value is, 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 is providing that for them. So as far as working on a validation, you know, it's, it's labor intensive for me. So if I'm going to include, you know, 16 more people on validations, none of them have, or very few of them have done this before. You know, we've got to talk about record keeping and pulling blocks and searching for, for cases in the LIS. And you've got to talk about how do you write up the validation report when you talk about sensitivity and specificity and some words that they may not have even thought about before. So there is a front end aspect that is quite labor intensive for me. But I would say most labs that I've worked in, I would give it about two years before you start reaping the benefits of that. So you're spending an inordinate amount of time to build into people, but in the end, it, it, it reaps huge benefits when everybody kind of can operate at that same level. So between myself and our lead tech and one other IHC person, we're kind of all, and we brought in vendors to do train additional training with people as well for different things like Kish and Ish. So yeah, I think it's, it, it's, it's a labor of love and it's also out of just, I know that that's the best model going forward. I don't like things hinging on a single person, including myself, because then if they leave, the whole equation just gets disrupted. So, yeah. That's a very good point. And I think I read, or I perhaps saw in a short interview that you did, I can't recall now, but you said that you took the capacity of Virginia Mason's IHC department from being able to validate only a couple of antibodies at a time to, I think you had said 30. Can yeah, you tell us no. about some of the ones that you're working on right now? You are going to make me pull something up, but I can. Um, one of them <laughs> I've reached out to you for, so BRAF. Um, oh, yes, indeed. Yeah, no, that that's one that we've 
So some of these are companion diagnostics, so they're more prognostic in nature. And, you know, PDL one is one that's kind of hot. It's for non-small cell lung carcinomas. BRAF is to differentiate uh, sporadic things or uh, Lynch syndrome for colorectal cancers. DOG1 for GIST, gastrointestinal stromal tumors, uh, really good antibody. Looking at STAT6, androgen receptor, some other ones like BAP1 and MTAP uh, for mesotheliomas. So yeah, we're really just, we're hitting, we're hitting quite a few. We've, we've looked at like Eber and Kappa Lambda Kish we brought on. So yeah, NKX 3.1, a prostate antibody. We're, we're, we're looking at quite a few. So I've got a laundry list of, of things our pathologists have said what they want and the, kind of their wish list. And then where we had redundancy in pathologist requests, I obviously bumped those to the top of the list because we have multiple pathologists interested in that. And then my chief pathology and I, chief pathologist and myself sat down and prioritized them into a couple different sets of validation. So yeah, at any given time before, that was a true statement. We would have, you know, two antibodies being validated at a time. And now I can give give those out to the whole team. And we were doing about 30 at a time, which is, we've got a lot of room to, gr- to go, but I think we can get there much quicker with that, with that capacity. That's great. Your list sounds uh, very familiar with, good luck with the BAP one. <laughs> <laughs> no, that it's, one it's, has, it's a pretty tricky a one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, an MTAP. I just, it doesn't look great, but I, I hope you have better luck than perhaps we had. We continually work on those two uh, on a con- constant basis, it seems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we're we're having a little bit of trouble with those, but yeah. our renal guy <laughs> is interested in those, those ones. Oh, great. And so now you mentioned companion diagnostics. So I'm not sure if the terminology is the same in the States as in Canada, but we classify antibodies and ish as class one versus class two tests where class two tests would fall into that precision medicine category, that personalized medicine or companion diagnostic. Can you give a description of the difference between validation and not just the requirements, but why it's required. Yeah, no, that's a good... what is yeah, what is a class yeah. one and a class two? And you can correct me on the American terminology, please. No, I, I think they, they do have class terminology in the US. Um, I guess the best way to explain it is if I've got a, a tumor that's uh, of an unknown primary and I'm gonna throw you know, seven different antibodies or 20, some labs just throw 20 or 30 antibodies at it to try to figure out what you've got. None of those in and of themselves is going to make that diagnosis. So you're making that diagnosis off morphology, but you're also doing it off of a smattering of, of, uh, or a barrage of antibodies, right? So those would not be driving treatment. They would not be, they're, they're used as a in aggregate to, to make that diagnosis. So when I say something like a companion diagnostic, something like ERPR HER2, which are prognostic markers, their test in and of themselves when I run a HER2 test is going to be driving treatment to that patient. Same thing with a PDL1. You know, it's it's looking at that treatment, obviously in a 
palliative care, not in some curative form, but it is directly tied to treatment. So there's higher regulation and scrutiny over those types of tests. And so a lot of tests in the United States, you can do lab developed tests and you can do, you can alter an FDA approved test and run it as a lab developed test. But if you're going to use an FDA approved companion diagnostic, these are often ones that are tests that have that prognostic or therapeutic um, aspect to them, but they're also being tethered to a piece of equipment. So with regards to the PDL one since that's one of the ones that I'm working up, for quite a while, until just recently, it was only to be run on the auto stainer uh, Link 48 stainer. And they've since got it cleared to be run on the DACO Omnis. But if you were to run that on some other platform, it would not be F- FDA approved. So it's, it's that companion, it's tied to that, that piece of equipment. And so they're, they're constantly adjusting those. So in that context, in that one, PDL one I can only run uh, non-small cell lung carcinoma for the PDL one on the DACO Omnis, but I could run all other um, indications on the Link 48 and it's FDA approved. So it, it just, it goes through a higher scrutiny through the FDA and then it, it, it gets that clearance to be run on different equipment. So that's, that's, I guess, what I mean by that companion diagnostic term. And are you still having to run that auto stain or Link 48? So we chose, our pathologist chose, uh, PDL one's a little trickier on the scoring than other, other things, other IHC markers. So we chose just to run it for now with non-small cell lung carcinoma. I think they did recently clear it for triple negative breast cancer cases. And so, but again, my concern with that assay is that the, the pathologists need more training and, and need to understand that the, the scoring is different based on which um, clinical indication you're looking at. So we currently are only validating it with the non-small cell lung carcinomas. Is a tricky assay. It is very difficult to score. We've worked it up as a laboratory developed test. I think we have slightly more freedom in Canada with Health Canada than with the FDA. And where do you stand on laboratory developed tests? Do Do you have any in your laboratory right now? Oh, absolutely. Every lab I've worked in has them. You know, when these conversations go to Congress and in Capitol Hill, they they definitely can make a case and they can cherry pick the cases that best make their case. If we have to have this lab developed test, there's no other place in the United States or the world that does this. We have to keep this in place. And I'm sure there is a context for having lab developed tests. In my opinion, it's a way overutilized entity. And we probably should have, when we talk about standardization, I think we're, we're missing the mark when we keep playing that lab developed test card. I would be totally fine with seeing a lot of our lab developed tests disappear and go to an FDA approved test. And some of them make sense, right? So if we're talking about like microorganisms, um, different viral things like CMV, HSV, there's really no, the, the scale, the, the monetary value for a company to go get the FDA clearance for that is never going to be there. So part of it is, is just the incent- to incentivize it for some of the vendors for some of those lower frequency ones, I think would be advantageous. Because obviously, if you've got a big breast marker or a lung marker or something that has a high application in the clinical setting, it's, it's going to garner much more revenue. And so they'll go get that clearance much, much quicker. But something like 
I don't know, <laughs> any of your viral things, they're just never going to go after that. So it will always be, you know, an ASR antibody and it will necessitate that it's a lab developed test at that point. It's a very good point about the driver for some of what we see with IBD versus those research use only antibodies that yeah. we still use. In our yeah, labs. exactly. And there's a, there's a role for those to play for sure. Exactly. When they haven't quite reached that uh, clinical stage yet. So with the instrumentation in your lab right now, could you give us a little descriptor of that without uh, being a particular plug for any one vendor? But, but how has the, what you have now evolved over your career? You did start out doing manual IHC and now are obviously heavily automated I'd just like to hear what you're using now and how that developed over your career. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Yeah, I actually, ironically, just talked to the lab um, director, the, the medical director at the lab that I started at just like, I don't know, two or three weeks ago, and they still are 100% manual. <laughs> and they've talked to a lab down in Texas that's still high volume lab, but manual because they felt like they could keep costs down and they could control things better. The problem is, and they, they're coming to realize this now and they're moving towards automation, is that what I said before is that it hinges on your technical staff. So as soon as you lose some technical person, you're dead in the water. So they are looking at going to full automation. So I think, you know, I, I can easily answer the question without promoting one vendor over another. I think they all have pros and cons to each, each piece of equipment, but what they all provide is that tech doesn't have to be on their game doing it manually. They, they can put it on and walk away. And some of the newer platforms now can do uh, random access. Um, so you're able to load a slide in real time in flow and get it staining independently. And some of these do it, um, do it in like some of the DACA ones will have um, racks of 12 versus like a Ventana that does just each individual slide. It's not on, on rack. So each platform has pros and cons, but to be able to free up a tech to go cut, to embed, to do maybe your manual special stains really is huge benefit. And to me, the bigger benefit is that standardization, which no human can do consistently over time, all the time. Like you're going to make mistakes. You're going to forget something or put the wrong thing on or the wrong order. So that standardization, I think, tied to equipment is, is really useful. And we've seen within the past few years or um, last decade, like the DACA one that I'm on now, and lots of lots of equipment coming out on the market right now that share this trait is that they can do IHC and ish on the same instrument. So ish, in my experience, when I was at Phenopath, was a very manual process. And now that you can do it online, and again, to, to reap that standardization aspect is, is just huge. So the histology field, I think, has morphed and changed over time to where there's some really good special stainers on the market now, too, that just give great special stains. And I haven't worked at a place that is able to get 100% of their, their special stains on one piece of equipment. But usually you can get, I don't know, 50 to 80% of your specials on, on something like that, which is just a big benefit, as you can imagine, trying to do five or seven different special stains at one time, you're bound to make mistakes. And, and we still see that with our manuals, manual special stains, because we have a few here. But yeah, it, it definitely is an advantageous trend that I, I hope continues. And it's interesting that probably in both of our careers, we've 
moved forward so much with automation for IHC particularly that I'm not sure in your lab, but in, in my labs that I oversee, we're not doing any manual IHC staining anymore. It's all automated. And we're mo moving in that direction for ish. So what, what have been the challenges that you've found with trying to work up ish on an automated platform? That's a good question. It's uh, much more temperature dependent. We had issues with mixing. We had to end up buying this it's kind of goofy, but this little metal ball thing that, that mixes, mixes your thing. Um, I'm very familiar. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> yes. we were doing this manually. That's right. I think you want the homogeneous mixture. You want everything to be the same. You don't want, you know, pockets of, of one reagent over the other. So you want it mixed well. Uh, I think RNA is a concern with, with ish. So cutting with gloves and a clean water bath and making sure that you don't have contamination between specimens because it's it's not like IHC you're dealing with the RNA aspect so having a very clean workspace is is a big concern with those we haven't had the automation really is is fairly clean once you have the process down i don't think those have been too difficult we've had some platform issues with controls but i think that's tied to the platform not necessarily the the actual process of the lab tech. So, and do yeah, you do any fish as well? So I know you talked about that you were working up, and I, I'm you. You may not have said this in this interview. It may have been a different one, but I know you said you're working up kappa lambda and the Eber ish. Are you working up any fish protocols as well? You know, at this time, um, we're not. We're just just doing the Kish. We're also looking at HPV with Kish, but. We haven't looked at doing any fish. I think if we were, HER2 would be the one that I'd be looking at. That would probably require a different platform, which we've talked about. But our current platform, it's we're just looking at KISH at this time. For ISH, usually the, the reading is just done on a regular light microscope and isn't automated in terms of any digital capture. Are, are you doing any of that with your ISH stains? Are they going through your, your digital? No. So we have not purchased any digital, <laughs> digital technology yet. It's on our radar and it's something that we've looked at, but we're, we're a little behind the curve on that one. So the benefit of the KISH is the, the C is the chromogenic labeling. So it's, it's, you can use a light microscope. So our pathologists are reading those at their regular microscope. We do immunofluorescent, direct immunofluorescence, um, and they use a fluorescent scope for that, but nothing is digitally captured at this time. There's a couple really cool platforms out there and um, our, our digital pathology group has quite a few resources around that, but we've, we've not adopted that in our lab yet. And so you said that you're here too, you're thinking about that, but you would need a different platform that's being done manually then I take it? Uh, we send out for the fish. Um, the IHC is done on an automated platform, but the, the fish, so for the ones that are equivocal, we would send out for fish. Right, right, yeah. 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 And so that also just reminded me, and I'm not sure why, as you were saying that, that I'm wondering, what do you see as your vision for the future of IHC and how that can all tie in with what you're doing now as a foundation? And we kind of touched on this a little bit um, previously, where we've come from such a 
place with so little standardization in the field. And we're really trying to come together to standardize and you're doing some really important work, but how do you see that moving forward? What do you, what's your vision for IHC? Um, well, in the clinical setting, which is where I work, I'm not in, in research or pharma. I think we, we often are looking to research and pharma for what they're doing because they're a little bit more cutting edge and have more funds for some of these things. So some of them, I think you probably know David Kroll, good, good friend of mine, um, very active in the society. He works for a pharma company. And so some of the talks he's given at NSH, which, which is part of the reason I love being a part of NSH is they are so education is a big component of what we try to provide. So there's no way you would know a lot of these things without going to the symposiums and going to these classes, but looking at just historically where things have come, you know, we we've gone from these multiplexing where you're putting a couple different antibodies to four different antibodies sometimes in sequential fashion, sometimes as a cocktail to the point where now, you know, they're doing things upward of like 40 different antibodies on one, one slide. And they were doing it with metal and now they're doing it with DNA where they're marking the, these targets. So I think, you know, we're going to see over time and you talked about digital pathology and, and getting those digital images that you can, once you have that, I think there's a lot of different algorithms and different things that can, you can manipulate the data and, and, and get a lot of information out of it. So I think it will be really cool to see where we can take things on that front. And that's, I think, a ways away for clinical settings, but I think a really cool potential application for us. So it, it makes sense right now when they're really looking at a, um, different targets in, in pharma, but I, I think it will probably have an application in the clinical side too down the road. What's your advice then to histotechs right now who are even in your own laboratory who are interested in IHC and interested in being a part of what that vision is for the future and, and developing that and incorporating those, that research and development that's been done in other areas? What, what would your advice be to those newer technologists? Yeah, I think irrespective of what field you're in, but specifically our field, like be inquisitive, go, go read, go learn, go find out what you don't know, go to the symposiums, go to talks that usually there's state societies that have symposiums, conferences, there's the national society, there's international quality improvement projects. I, I love the Canadian, the, the CIQC, the um, UK NEQAS um, over in Europe, that there's an Australian one, like, the more you get involved, the more you start seeing that there's a much bigger world and you can get that knowledge and that training and experience and be exposed to some of these things. I think, like I've said, rubbing shoulders with people that know more than you, like all the people I've encountered that know more than I do, and there's, <laughs> there's a lot of them, they're always willing to share knowledge and, and expertise. So be vocal, ask questions. There is no stupid question. So be be inquisitive, be vocal, get involved. Once you start getting involved with, with NSH and other societies and organizations, you'll start getting that experience and that knowledge and you'll see different doors will open for you and different ways for you to pay it back to the next generation as well. But yeah, I'd say be inquisitive and get involved. Great. That brings me kind of to a close in terms of the questions I had prepared for you, Jeremy. Sure. You've done extremely well, oh, well thank you. My, and really kind of tweaked my brain in terms of following up with you, especially with the 
HPV. I would be very curious to know how that goes for you. If you're, have you started that process yet? We don't. It's when you talked about doing 30 antibodies at one time, that, that didn't make the first cut. So it's in the second group that we haven't started yet, but it's, it's at the top of the second group. So. Right. So I'd love to hear from you when you um, get that started, because that's something I know our pathologists are very, very interested in here in developing. It, It has been developed in a research laboratory that's associated with our clinical laboratory, but the method right now is extremely laborious and very long. So I'd be very curious to know what you can do with it and very hopeful with your experience and knowledge that you can maybe get it working in a more efficient manner. (laughs) Yeah, I'm absolutely happy to help. I think anybody that's come into contact with me knows I'm happy to share resources and any protocol. I, I, I definitely believe in that you know, open, open platform, open sharing with people. So yeah, happy to share. And that kind of segues into the antibody database as part of the IHC committee that hopefully going to be expanded on uh, this year, I think is one of the mandates to make that available and more user-friendly for the NSH members to draw upon in their own laboratories, the resource of other laboratories throughout the world, really which would be really great to add all of your vast menu onto that database. <laughs> I'd love to I think I've that. already got quite a few on there, but yeah, awesome. <laughs> definitely should add more of them. Good. It's tough to keep up to date with that, I have to say. I know. So I'm very excited that we got to have this talk together, and I'm hoping to get to know you better over the next years as I'm in my director role and hopefully get more involved again with the IHC committee after having a year of uh, everybody standing still pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that we can all get back to it. And I I do really appreciate that you mentioned uh, Canada quite a few times and my colleagues up here and have some knowledge of what we're doing here because it's really not all that different from what's happening in the States. And in the spirit of bringing a little Canadiana to our conversation, (laughs) I'm hoping you can help me fill in the blank, Jeremy. (laughs) Do, 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 do. Oh, thank you. You just (laughs) touched my heart (laughs) like you don't even know. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jeremy Johnston. And I look forward to working with you more in the future. You as well, Nadia. Thanks. The pleasure is all mine.